Hi and welcome to the Glam Reaper podcast. On today's episode, I had a really interesting conversation with a gentleman who wrote a book about the meaning of life and how if we accept that we're going to die one day, we might live life a little better, which is definitely right up my alley. So let's talk to our very fabulous guest and let him take it away. So, okay, well, author, professor. His name is Sheldon Solomon and he is an absolute delight. He has written a book on the role of death in life, which I find fascinating. I have actually dog marked, earmarked, whatever you want to call it, many pages here for anybody that can see. But I want, Sheldon, for you to give us a quick intro as to you, how you came to be and how you came to write a book on the role of death in life when a bit like me you didn't have necessarily a massive past you're not in the funeral world in the medical profession per se so tell our listeners how that came about yeah great question and uh, like anything probably came about not from one particular direction let's say I can't remember if we talked about this when we were last across the table from each other in New York, but I've been disinclined to die for as long as I can remember. (laughs) Ever since I was about eight, it was the day after my grandmother died. And I I just remember it because I was sitting there and I was like, oh, I'm going to miss my grandmother. And then, you know, I was like, oh, but that means my mom's going to die. And then it was like, and I used to collect stamps in the old days and I had stamps with all these old American presidents and I was looking at them. I was like, oh, there's George Washington, he's dead. There's Thomas Jefferson, he's dead. And then all of a sudden I'm like, oh man, that means, you know, someday I'm gonna die. I really had one of those, you know, shuddering moments. And uh, so I guess my point is, is that I always had kind of a personal stake in this although I didn't really think about it for a long time. And then, you know, fast forward a couple of decades, I was a young professor walking around in the library at Skidmore College where I bumped into books by Ernest Becker, a cultural anthropologist who I'd never heard of, who had recently died in 1974, right after or right before, rather, he published the book, The Denial of Death. And I started reading his books and was just blown away by the simplicity of his ideas and also the way that I found them psychologically discombobulating. Because he just said, look, that what makes people different than any other form of life is that we're smart enough to know that the basic biological imperative that we share with all other living creatures, which is to stay alive at all costs, is doomed to fail. So every living thing is biologically predisposed to survive, but one accidental byproduct of our vast intelligence is we realize from a rather early age that we are gonna die someday. Not only that, but it could be today. And what Ernest Becker said is that if that's all we thought about, you know, that we're gonna die, we can walk outside and and get hit by a comet or smote by a virus, that you just wouldn't be able to stand up in the morning. And he said we'd be debilitated with waves of existential terror. And, but that raises the question of how come we are able to stand up in the morning. And his answer in a single word was culture. He just said, look, 
We have these humanly constructed beliefs about reality that we share with each other in our group, and that helps us manage death anxiety by giving each of us a sense that life has meaning and that we have value, maybe to the point we're eligible for immortality, you know, either through the heavens and afterlives and the souls of all the world's great religions, or even if you don't believe in that kind of immortality, the ancient Greeks had another flavor that these days they call symbolic immortality, where you're like, okay, I'm not gonna be here forever, but I know that aspects of me that will persist over time nonetheless. Maybe I'll have kids, maybe I'll get, make a lot of money and put my name on buildings and things. Maybe I'll create a great work of art or science, or maybe you'll do a fine podcast and a lot of folks will listen to it long after we're no longer around. And what Becker proposed very simply is that whether we like it or not, we spend most of our waking moments and whether we're conscious of it or not, we spend most of our lives trying to maintain confidence in our culturally constructed beliefs and as well as uh, faith that we're living up uh, to the standards of value that are associated uh, with our role in the context of that culture. The English translation in Becker's language, we need to have self-esteem, the belief that we as individuals are valuable members of our community. And so those were the ideas that 40 years ago, I was like, wow, this strikes me as really relevant to my own experiences. It was also the case that Becker's ideas helped me understand a whole lot of things that I was always thinking about, and I thought that was awesome. But to make a short story long, none of our psychologist colleagues at the time thought very much of these ideas. So we would go around to conferences and we'd be like, wow, this guy, has a lot of interesting things to say. It can help explain a lot. And psychologists just said, no, I don't think so. You know, they said either, some would say, well, I don't think about death much, so your ideas are obviously not right. Others said, this is interesting, but there's no proof. And as long as there's not, it's speculative, and that's fine for some disciplines, but not for supposedly psychological science. So that's how we kind of got involved. We found the ideas captivating. Our colleagues didn't buy it, and we're like, all right, this is what we're trained to do, so we'll give it a go. This is you, Sheldon, with Jeff and Tom. That's right, my buddies Jeff Greenberg and Tom Pazinski, we were graduate students together back in the last millennium at the University of Kansas. And so in a really brief way, if somebody was not to read your book, what would sum up what's in it and why they should read it? Great question. So what we say that we're trying to do in our book is to describe Ernest Becker's ideas at the same time that we provide the evidence that we've collected over the years in support of them. And so the reason that we think it's important that people expose themselves to these ideas, it has nothing to do with us. Of course, we wrote a book and everyone would like it if your work was well received, but 
More important is the broad dissemination of these ideas for two reasons. One is that we think that there's too many things that you can't understand without these ideas. So for example, Becker says, look, this helps us understand why we can't get along with people who are different. Because if somebody has different beliefs and I accept them, well, that destroys my confidence in my own beliefs. And because my beliefs protect me from death anxiety, when I run into somebody who's different, I'm gonna disparage and dehumanize them. I'm gonna try to get them to get rid of their beliefs and adopt mine instead. And if that doesn't work, I'm just gonna kill them. And so Becker's like, that's one of the main reasons why we've been beating the crap out of each other since day one. You know, history is a nightmare from which I'm trying to awake. So basically Becker's like, look at all the evil that is perpetrated in the world, he claims, just trying to rid the world of evil. And in our studies, what we find is when we remind people that they're gonna die, they hate and harm other people who are different. And so when we remind people they're gonna die, it changes their political beliefs. It makes them more likely to vote for charismatic leaders who say, I'm the only one who can keep you safe. It makes people uncomfortable with their bodies and with nature. It, it turns people into indiscriminate and insatiable buyers of stuff. It makes them yeah and just and on that because i think that's quite fascinating especially considering at the moment and what's going on in the united states you've actually done quite a lot of research on this so if this isn't just sort of somebody who read a couple of books and decided i'm going to put my thoughts down about this subject you've done all of the research you've sat down and how many people and you know put death in front of them and what has their reactions been i mean you've already given us that people will change politically dependent on and people make purchases. What are some of the more interesting things that you've discovered from your research? Well, I do think that one of the more interesting things is just how it modifies political preferences. So for example, in the election that we just had a few weeks ago, we found in a study conducted a week or two before the election that in Staten Island, the sample of Americans who were intended to vote in a control condition as a group, they like Joe Biden more than Donald Trump. But the ones that were reminded of their mortality first, they like Donald Trump more than Joe Biden. So this idea that a really subtle alteration, thinking about yourself dying, and by the way, you don't even need to know that you're thinking about dying. We can blast the word death on a computer so fast that you don't even know it's in your head. And well, I find that amazing. I find it amazing that after you're reminded that you're going to die, that if you drink alcohol, you drink more alcohol. If you smoke cigarettes, not only do you smoke more cigarettes, you inhale harder. So if you're reminded of death or your mortality, which is, I mean, I had the exact same experience as you at younger. It was sort of thrown right in my face and I was like, whoa, I could die tomorrow. So it's something that you and I had in common. I remember when we met, but so the fact that if I'm reminded of death or my own mortality, it means I'm going to drink harder, smoke harder and vote for Donald Trump. Is that a brief summary? Oh God. 
it is at least possible. And by the way, just to pile on a little bit, if you have a diagnosed psychological disorder, anything from a phobia to social anxiety to OCD, uh, to a touch of PTSD, death reminders magnify every existing psychological disorder. So you're quite right. It sounds kind of gruesome, but death reminders, you know, they turn us into hateful, warmongering, you know, proto-fascists plundering the planet in our insatiable uh, quest for dollars and dross. And so one reason to think about this, and by the way, when I say that this is what happens, I'm not excluding myself from any of these phenomenon. And that would be one reason, Jennifer, I would submit that it's important that all of us think about this, to understand the extent to which a lot of our behaviors that we may not be particularly proud of are the unfortunate manifestation of essentially repressed death anxiety, not to resort to psychobabble. And then the hope though, and here's the upside, and it, the argument is that, and again, these are not our ideas, this goes back to antiquity, the point being that to live a full and rich life, and you know this as well or better than I, requires a mature confrontation and engagement and ultimately acknowledgement and acceptance of the reality of the human condition as it pertains to each of us. And that is that we're going to die. And I like how Albert Camus put it, you know, when he said, come to terms with death, thereafter anything is possible. And that's our other agenda in the book is that it's not just to say, oh, look at uh, all of these horrible things that we do when we're reminded that we're going to die because ultimately it's not about death, it's about life and returning to the question of how it is that engaging with the, you know, with our finitude is ultimately life enhancing. Yeah, and it, actually you, you nearly answered a question that I was going to ask you, which is that like when I just described there that thinking about death is going to make me drink harder, smoke harder and vote for Donald Trump, that picture, depending on who you are, that's a pretty dire picture. So, you know, should we think about death? I personally am an advocate for thinking about it and I oh, feel yeah. like we live more fully. So you kind of actually answered to the question ahead of me in that you believe that while those actions are something we innately do, you do believe that if we think about death as a part of life, it's the problem is the when we don't think about it and it's suddenly put in subliminally, that's where the anxiety comes in. Yes, brilliant, Jennifer. And I think that's an important point that bears repetition. What the thing, the phenomena that we find in our studies that are unpleasant, you know, we become gluttonous and hateful and so on. Those are in response to really subtle or even unconscious reminders of death. And I like how you put it, we're almost hardwired. When death enters our mind, the first thing that we try to do is to get it out of our minds. And it's when we do that, 
that it ends up coming back anyway. And that's when we get more hateful and I need more cigarettes and beer and so on. That's different than metaphorically stepping out of that kind of almost automatic, it is an automatic set of defensive processes so that you could metaphorically, you know, render yourself the object of your own subjective inquiry long enough, you know, to, to clear a space, you know, in your mental horizon to be able to really think about it explicitly. Yeah, and it's, I think, for me anyway, I think, I mean, he did a lot of good things when he was alive, but I think Steve Jobs summed it up incredibly well when he said that death was maybe the single best invention of life because it's life's change agent and it clears the way for the new. And that that's a very harsh reality in, in one sense, but it's very true in another sense. It's harsh in none of us want to lose our loved ones. None of us want to lose a child too soon. None of us want to lose our mothers, our brothers, our sisters too soon. But life is cyclical and it doesn't matter what you believe in, whether there is an afterlife or there's not, our current state of affairs is never going to be repeated. It's never going to be the same again. It doesn't really matter what you believe in. And so I think what's fascinating about what he said and what you're saying is that we have a lot of anxiety about it. And probably, I think do think religion does help us. Probably that's why religion was invented in a certain way, was to give us that soft cushioning of it's okay, there's something after this, to take away that death anxiety. And talk a little bit about, because you do talk about it in the book, religion and I don't say cults, but tribal, like people coming together in communities and how, how does that help with your death anxiety? How does that, like all these death cafes that are out right now, people coming together to talk about death. And that could be two very different things. But yeah, if you can give us enlighten a bit about that. Yeah, you know, they are two different things, although clearly overlapping, honestly, in important ways. So I, I like that juxtaposition of questions, although because I'm in my early senility days, if I forget where we're heading, you'll remind me. So one of the things that we do in the book is to try and provide an overview. And we're not experts on the evolution of religion, except that Right now, what a lot of people argue, and I think that they're on the right track, is that a, a religion may have arisen long before people were explicitly conscious or aware of death or had any notion of gods. The, the word religion comes from a Latin word that means to bind. And a dead French guy, Emile Durkheim, he said that Really, a religion arose to foster social coordination and cohesion between individuals, that it really is something that, at our best, just brings us together. And of course, when we get to the death cafes, I think that comes back to the original. I find this exhilarating because the implication here, and this, I mean no disrespect, to those who take issue with a natural explanation for religion. But the fact of the matter is, is that what really underlies religion when you get right down to it is commonality. It means to bind. Over time, the argument goes, 
we began to, as a species, become increasingly self-aware to the point where concerns about death arose, at which point religious worldviews that provided hopes of immortality uh, were obviously going to be selected for, which is just my way of saying I'm agreeing with you, Jennifer, when we talk about one important psychological function of religion is to provide comfort in wake of the knowledge of our death, but uh, there's more to it than that. And I can't remember a Swiss scholar, he died recently, Walter Burkert, Burkert, he wrote a book about religion and he's like, look, we have religion because we fear death, but we also have it because we love life. And I like to, I think that's awesome. But then by the end of the book, when we're talking about the death cafes, that's in our chapter, I think we call it living with death, where we point out that in our society, and of course I know from our last meeting that you know this much more than I, that you know we live in an essentially death-denying culture. But we don't, most people have never seen a dead person. Old people, you know, they go live in other places. And we spend more on cosmetics than we do on education, just to keep from looking old and so on. And the idea of the death cafe, and I met John Underwood, who's one of the guys that started it in England. And the point that he made when he started the death cafe was, again, I want to have a public space where people are going to feel comfortable talking about the ultimate existential concern that ironically rarely gets into public discourse. So you believe, Sheldon, that we should, we are in a death denial um, society and and I, I absolutely agree with you. I, if, I mean, plastic surgery and the creams and everything we can to keep us young, keep us alive, there's even, I, I read a, a fascinating fact one time where it said that a doctor wouldn't sign, a, wouldn't necessarily have a DNR because they, or would, sorry, would, would have do not resuscitate because they didn't actually believe in all of the tactics we use to keep people alive. And I thought that was really interesting because it just goes to show, even with the likes of embalming, you know, I work in the funeral community, the likes of embalming keeps us young, keeps us pure, keeps us looking the way we were before our bodies gave up on us. And so all of that I find to be really, really fascinating. And there's a really good book. I don't think I'd actually read it by the time you and I met, Sheldon. It's Catherine Mannix with the end in mind. And I've mentioned it on this podcast a couple of times with a couple of different interviewees. And the reason why I loved it so much was it actually, while I might work in the funeral business, the thought of dying obviously does still terrify me. And so I like I reading this book, she talks about the actual process of dying. And it actually, when I closed it over and, and put it away, it actually, I felt a lot more calmer. I felt more soothed. I had less anxiety about dying. I knew death wasn't necessarily going to affect me, but the process of dying and potentially dying alone and all of the factors that go with it 
yeah, I, I, I thought it was a really, really great book. But just to finish off, Sheldon, what would you potentially suggest to people as to go forward and have less death anxiety or to sort of embrace life should they read your book? <laughs> should they think more about their immortality? What would you have any tips for that? Yeah, I mean, at the risk of sounding silly, my tip is to propose that there's no one suggestion that would necessarily be suitable for all. You know, we wrote a book and it's awesome when every week a few people around Earth say, oh, I read your book and, you know, it, I feel like I've profited from that. You know, I probably don't hear from the 5,000 people that started the book but drifted off into a coma <laughs> after paying because I would submit, and again, forgive me if we spoke about this when we last met, but it wouldn't matter because we weren't recording it. I feel like what you all, the young folks who are have one, you know, foot in the real world and then one foot in this world, that you are potentially more poised to be in a position to put these kinds of ideas in circulation. You know, I guess my main piece of advice for the moment, and which may or may not be useful, but you know, here we are in the middle of a pandemic, which if it's not obvious, is a rather once in a lifetime event of potentially earth shattering existential implications. And on the one hand, for a large chunk of humanity, this has been nothing short uh, of, you know, tragic to the point of despair. You know, there's millions of people who are infected and millions who have died worldwide. Moreover, there's a large swatch of humanity that is gonna be economically insecure for a long while, but there's also a big chunk of humanity, and I'm gonna put us in it because here we are sure looking like we slept inside last night and had lunch. For those of us that are lucky enough uh, to be upright and relatively physically secure, you know, I'm gonna go, uh, I don't even know which dead philosopher said this, but these kinds of moments uh, can be existentially discombobulating, but they can also be monumentally transformative and uplifting. Because for some people, this has been, even if involuntary, you know, kind of a metaphorical timeout that allows us to step back and for some to really think, am I doing what I'm doing? because that is a genuine reflection of what Heidegger called my own self or authentic living, you know, or am I culturally constructed meat puppet, just like a giant hamster on an exercise wheel, you know, forging ahead as if I knew who I am and what I wanted. And when in fact, all you're heading for in 20 or 30 years is, you know, drug rehab after a couple of divorces and so on. So maybe this is, so I guess my, I'm not even sure if it's relevant to your question, but at this particular moment in time, as maybe absurd as it sounds, this could be a good opportunity for lots of us to take stock and to be humble, grateful, joyous, and 
to literally as, you know, again, as trite as this sounds, I'm trite, but I'm right. It's like, it is great uh, to be alive. And maybe we need a pandemic on occasion to remind us of that. And then to just end where we started, I think we shared the view that, you know, to be fully alive um, that requires that we not deny the reality of the human condition, that we accept ourselves as we are, as human beings. Absolutely, and I think that's a wonderful part to end on, really and truly, because COVID has landed everybody on their ass. And it didn't matter if you were wealthy, you didn't have two beans to rub together. It didn't matter where in the world you were. It brought everybody to a very, very similar level. And it threw mortality in all of our faces. Now, whether you chose to pick up on that is another thing, but I think that's an absolutely imperative note to end on. I really do. And it did. I, I think naturally the whole world had to take stock of their mortality and I think made changes for the better, mostly because of it, mostly. mostly. Some people didn't, absolutely some people didn't and there's not much you can do about that. But I do think anybody that's listening to this today, I think the best thing you can do is what I say to most people most of the time is honestly, the simplest thing you can do is pick up the phone, pick up a mouse and a keyboard, type I love you, text your loved one, give that person a hug, tell that person you have a crush on, you have a crush on them. Like honestly, who doesn't love to be told that somebody cares about them? And it doesn't really matter if you've, you know, the, the garbage man on the street, it doesn't matter. I mean, I say hello to my postman every morning and there is nothing wrong with just a smile and sharing a bit of kindness. And I think that's what all the world needs right now. And I think COVID really showed that. The fact that it, you know, with the masks, it took away our smiles. I just think it's it's a massively huge thing right now. Yeah. And I think that's amazing. Well, thank you so much. This was really good. I loved it. Thanks. My pleasure. What did you think of that episode, guys? Um, I think he is a super interesting character. I know I probably said that about all my guests, but um, yeah, it was quite scientific, but and definitely nerded out on all the death facts, but I found it quite interesting and hopefully you guys did too. So um, send us your comments, feedback, and questions as always to glamrooperpodcast at gmail.com and we'll talk to you next time.